Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Meg Terrell. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Garde. It's Thursday, July 22nd, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. How concerned should we be about breakthrough coronavirus infections? Dr. Celine Gounder of NYU's Grossman School of Medicine joins us to discuss the latest dynamics of the pandemic. One moderate Democrat raked in thousands of dollars of donations from pharma within two days of trying to derail a high-profile drug pricing bill. Stats Rachel Kors joins us to explain the story and the industry's sweeping influence in Washington. First, we'll start with some quick takes on This Week in Biotech, but before that, a word from our sponsor. Support for this podcast comes from Houston Methodist Hospital. Dr. James Musser and his colleagues at the Houston Methodist Research Institute sequenced 20,453 specimens from COVID-19 patients starting in March 2020. Visit the Leading Medicine blog on HoustonMethodist.org to learn more. So in all the weeks of debate and controversy surrounding Aduhelm, the controversial recently approved treatment for Alzheimer's disease, one voice we haven't heard very much is that of Biogen, the manufacturer. And that changed on Thursday morning when the company reported its quarterly earnings. The focus was much less on the profits and losses that they uh, unveiled, but rather on how management would confront basically all of the maelstrom that has surrounded their new drug. Adam, you listened on the call. What was uh, What was your big takeaway? My big takeaway was, you know, that the company was sort of going a little bit going on the offensive, trying to sort of counter a lot of the criticism that they have received uh, about the approval, um, but also kind of defensive in, you know, in the way that they went about doing that. And it just seemed like the pressure is I, I think the pressure is kind of getting to them a little bit because some of the arguments that they made, I, I felt like fell short. Well, and the first question they got from an analyst on the call uh, exposed perhaps some of the sensitivities management is feeling about all of the pushback they've gotten for the Alzheimer's drug approval and the price. Let's take a listen to that exchange. It seems like ever since March of 2019, Biogen has been the target of constant assault from the media and other groups, which obviously intensified on June 7th when Aduhelm was approved. What do you suppose it is about Alzheimer's disease that causes the media to react so negatively to a drug that could actually help patients and their families and not treat them with the same respect that is rightly shown to victims of other diseases like cancer? Thank you, Jay, for the great questions. I will get started, and I guess Al will add. So again, it's, and you are, you're absolutely right in your question and your description of what we are exposed to but we are not the ones suffering the most. It's still the early day. So yeah, so that first question was from Jay Olson. He's a cell site analyst at uh, Oppenheimer. Um, I think Jay embarrassed himself with that question. Um, and, and let's be clear that these, these, uh, these earnings conference calls are a little bit of a kabuki theater. You know, they are, they are very much arranged. Um, it, it was it's no surprise, you know, maybe that, that Jay sort of asked that first question. I'm sure that Biogen was uh, prepared for it. Um, you know, so blaming the media for all of this stuff is, you know, it's kind of an old trope. And 
Um, I think he wasted his question. He actually said they're not suffering the most, implying they are suffering a little bit. Um, I mean, to be fair, you know, also Al Sandrock, the chief of research, put out an open letter um, along with the the earnings release, trying to counter what he called the misinformation around um, aducanumab since the approval. And one of the interesting things I thought was that he suggested uh, that people's criticisms of the amyloid hypothesis and the approval based on clearing amyloid um, is based on a faulty premise. He says that the other drugs focused on amyloid did not, in fact, clear them from the brain. And so you can't draw any conclusions from the failure of those drugs. What do you guys make of that argument? Well, that's fair enough. And I think that, I mean, I, I don't expect a sort of Mike Wallace standard of interrogation from from the uh, uh, Q and A's on on earnings calls, but I thought it was an interesting glimpse at what Biogen's narrative tactic is here. Because uh, Michelle Venazos, who you heard responding to that question, you know, accepts Jay's sympathies and then says, "But we are not the ones who are suffering." And then he pivots to this notion of criticisms of Aduhelm's data package, criticisms of Biogen's handling of it, Biogen's price, I think most most clearly, Biogen is clearly going to frame those as people getting in the way of patients getting a drug that could desperately that could help them. Patients with a with an incurable and, and largely untreatable disease are the ones being harmed by the scrutiny upon and criticism of Biogen, which is a pretty, you know, clever tactic, but I think, you know, anyone listening to this, we can hold two thoughts in our head at the same time and uh, we can have sympathy for uh, patients with Alzheimer's and their families and their caregivers and still consider all of the facts around the Adjuhelm approval. I was a little confused by that. And I guess that was what I was alluding to earlier. I don't think that anybody is criticizing the approval of Adjuhelm based on the failure of the old drugs. I, I mean, I think that I think the criticism of Adjuhelm is based on the Adjuhelm data. I, I, that to me, I lo- you know, Al lost me there with that argument. I, I didn't really understand where he was going. Well, right. I mean, it's one of those things. It's like the Cartesian circle. He's saying this drug is approvable based on its uh, effect on amyloid and people saying that past drugs, um, you know, never really lived up. Well, they didn't have the same effect on amyloid. But again, the criticism is about the data on Adjuhelm, the clinical benefit or lack thereof observed in the trials. And as people have pointed out, other drugs also had a lack of clinical benefit. So, uh, you know, in, in fairness to Al, I think, you know, an open letter, all transparency is good. But I, it's hard to imagine, and we'll find out, I know our colleague Matt Herper is doing some reporting on this, if there were any neurologists who were negative on Adjuhelm or even on the fence on Adjuhelm who read Sandrock's letter and had their minds even slightly changed, I would be curious to, to know. Me too. Hopefully we'll see Matt's story soon. <laughs> now the pressure's on. I don't know if he's committed to it, but fair enough. <laughs> I do, I do want to get back to one thing that Jay Olson said in his opening remarks, you know, where he essentially accused the media and, he, and he's not just speaking about stat or CNBC. I think he's generally talking about all of media uh, that, you know, we don't treat Alzheimer's patients with the same respect that we treat uh, patients with other diseases like cancer. I sort of find that offensive, honestly. Um, you know, I think that there's a lot of stories, both in STAD and other media outlets. And Meg, you've interviewed a lot of uh, Alzheimer's patients where we actually have gone in and spoken to the patients and un- tried to understand what they're going through, what their families are going through, you know, the burden of Alzheimer's. And to suggest that, like, we don't care about Alzheimer's patients because we're reporting factually about Aduhelm and the review, I think, I think that's just, just false. And it's and it's really not very fair. 
it actually really was interesting to me to hear it because um, the last uh, Alzheimer's uh, patient and um, his wife, his caregiver, who I, I spoke with, who were in the aducanumab trial, actually made the same point. Um, their names were Linda and Ed, and Linda actually made the point, that, that a very similar point. She had been a nurse and was used to the high prices of drugs for cancer, for example. And when I asked her what she made of the the backlash and the criticisms of the price of Aduhelm, she said she thought there was also a bias against Alzheimer's patients. Um, so it, it is an interesting um, perspective and, and perhaps the community really does feel that way. They don't understand why high prices of cancer drugs are accepted when the high price of this drug is not. So moving on to a lighter topic, guys, um, have you seen the trailer for the new Netflix movie, Sweet Girl? Yes. <laughs> let's let let's have a listen to just a little bit of that. Okay. I miss her. I miss her family. My wife was supposed to start a new medication. A company that makes a drug. Pulled it off the market. Paying competitors to shell generic brands of drugs? That is immoral. Our next caller is from Pittsburgh. Sweet child of mine. <laughs> <laughs> So, Damien, I think you're our resident cinephile. Are you ready for this latest iteration of the evil pharma CEO? I'm not sure I'll ever be ready, but I, it is interesting how this kind of thing has evolved. Like, even just, like, the evil corporate baddie. I mean, we should set up, you know, the, the basic plot from the trailer, as far as I can discern, is that uh, Jason Momoa is is a lovely doting father um, whose daughter needs some drug. It's uh, no, wife. His yeah, wife his wife died. needs the drug. Right, his wife. <laughs> right, but then doesn't his it becomes a a quest to save his daughter who also needs the same drug? Maybe you know this can be sorted. These these are the yada yada yadas between <laughs> the um, mere details. Fist fights, I imagine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, whatever, whatever. There's 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 guns to shoot. Anyway, the the point is there's this uh, greedy pharmaceutical company that apparently has pulled the drug off the market and is doing pay to delay tactics to keep generics. From getting there, but I think it's an interesting evolution that the like corporate evil has gone from the sort of anonymous middle-aged white guys in a boardroom that we may remember from movies past, and it's now the sort of puffer vest kind of VC adjacent younger, um, I don't know, for lack of a better term, bro, who is apparently like the big bad in this film, which is just like an interesting cultural pivot, I guess. I thought it was notable he was wearing the hedge fund attire of the vest and not a hoodie. So it's not like obviously Martin Shkreli. It's like a different, different kind of vibe. And one thing I didn't get in terms of the premise of the movie. So apparently the pharma CEO pulls the drug off the market to make money, which I don't, I mean, obviously yeah. we need to wait for the movie to kind of get the details, <laughs> but that part of it escaped me. I was a little like, wait, if he's pulling the drug off the market, how are they greedy and immoral like that's a weird twist i wondered if it was like some the, the like the hard switch where like yeah yeah companies like pull an older version off the market to force patients onto a newer more expensive version um but of course we have to watch the movie to find out right i was gonna that seems like a matter of you know going to war with your insurance company or writing your congressman not necessarily shooting down a helicopter and getting in a car chase or whatever um entails in this movie but i think you know that's that's the magic of cinema and the other great thing about this movie in the trailer is that apparently the CEO, he's not only pulling drugs off the market, but he has advanced weapons training. <laughs> As which all is pretty farm cool. CEOs these days require. Right, yeah. I mean, 
I mean, do we think? I mean, I'm trying to think of like actual CEO, pharma CEOs who might have. Yeah, who's the most likely training. one? I think Steph. I think Stefan Bensel. Stefan Bensel definitely has advanced. I could see him, training. yeah, being a Krav Maga person. I know. I mean, Jeremy Levin is a a military veteran, mm. so you know, there's. I would assume that he has that ability. <laughs> In the past week, you may have heard about Olympic athletes who are fully vaccinated getting positive COVID tests, or people in Provincetown, Massachusetts, or Texas Democrats, or the New York Yankees. These are called breakthrough infections, and they're causing a lot of anxiety about whether the vaccines hold up against the hyper-transmissible Delta variant. But how concerning are they? And as cases are surging across the country, how much do they matter as a metric of the pandemic when we have a vaccine to protect against severe disease? Here to help us sort through it all is Dr. Celine Gounder, Clinical Assistant Professor of Medicine and Infectious Disease at NYU's Grossman School of Medicine, host of the Epidemic Podcast, member of the Biden-Harris Transition COVID-19 Advisory Board, and a member of the class of people we are calling pandemic celebrities. Dr. Gounder, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here. So Dr. Gounder, we'd love to just hear from you. How concerned are you when you hear about these instances of breakthrough infections in people who are fully vaccinated? I think we really need to better define what we mean by breakthrough infections. That's really a catch-all for people who might have an infection with no symptoms or very mild symptoms, all the way to somebody who might end up in the ICU or even dead. And so really we need to break down what is it that we're concerned about and, and why. And what concerns me is breakthrough disease. So people who have significant symptoms, uh, who are struggling to breathe, who are ending up in the hospital, and we really haven't seen breakthrough disease with the vaccines. Got it. So we've seen a lot of criticism in recent weeks of the way the CDC is handling the release of data and tracking of these breakthrough infections. Do you think their actions have been sufficient? Or is, is there more information that you think we need to have from, from federal regulators? Well, I, I really think we should be tracking breakthrough infections. Uh, and here's why. Those people who are still getting infected despite being vaccinated, they may not get sick. But it is possible that they could transmit the infection on to others. And so that's something we still don't really have a handle on, whether that's happening. Uh, there is some evidence from the sports leagues where they do a lot of testing of people, even if they have no symptoms, that some of these people may in fact be contagious. And so that is concerning. The second reason um, that we really want to be tracking breakthrough infections is for what we call genomic surveillance, which is where we look are there new variants that are starting to emerge and what do those look like? And you're more likely to find new emerging variants among people who have breakthrough infections. And so because you're not testing, we're sort of flying blind with respect to that because we're not assessing those breakthrough infections. So all this talk about breakthrough infections or breakthrough disease has also raised the issue of boosters, whether Americans will be required to you know, go back and get reinjected with COVID vaccine. What are your thoughts on that? So I think, first of all, booster is really not the right terminology here. I think the problem with boosters is when people hear that word, they're like, oh, well, it's going to be like a flu shot. I'm going to need to get a shot every year. The way I would, I would frame this is it's much more like, say, a blood pressure medicine um, that your doctor prescribes you, where you start at one dose and they might adjust the dose over time, you know, maybe have you come back in three months and up the dose a little bit. 
just because we are still figuring out the best dosage regimen for the COVID vaccine does not mean that the vaccines don't work and does not mean you're going to need a yearly COVID shot. I think it's more likely gonna end up being a bit like the hepatitis B vaccine where we give three doses and then you're done. I think similarly with COVID, it might be something like that where at least for some patient populations, we might need three doses instead of two and then you're done. That's really interesting. Where do you fall on the J&J vaccine and the current information we have about it? There's so much anxiety because it's just one dose. The overall efficacy from the beginning was lower than for the two-shot mRNA vaccines. And then you had this preprint come out this week from Dr. Landau's lab at NYU looking at you know, antibodies in the lab against pseudoviruses, uh, finding that there may be insufficient or at least less protection from the one-dose J&J shot against Delta. Um, and his suggestion is that we should at least be considering a second uh, dose of either the J&J vaccine or adding or mixing, you know, with the mRNA vaccines to get sufficient or better protection against Delta. And it just seems like CDC is not talking about this publicly and, and is just saying, Anybody who's fully vaccinated, and that includes people who got one dose of J&J, do not need a booster shot at this time. But I think there's a lot of people who got J&J out there who are feeling not fully vaccinated with one shot. What do you think? Well, so first of all, the, the CDC is looking at this. In fact, the CDC's ACIP, um, which is a group of people who advise the CDC on their vaccination guidelines, they're meeting today as we speak to evaluate whether additional doses of COVID vaccine should be given specifically, um, in this case, for people who have immunosuppression. Uh, but I, I anticipate they will be looking at other categories of patients as well. Um, with respect to the J&J &J vaccine, I think it's really important for people to understand as well that this is a very good vaccine. This is why we thought that one dose would be sufficient. Now, what we're learning is that um, particularly against some of these new variants like the Delta variant, um, even more so actually the, the beta variant, that one dose of J&J may not be enough. And I think what you will see over the next month or two are recommendations, at least for some subsets of people who got J&J, that they do get an additional dose of vaccine. Um, the other thing that we're seeing is when you mix and match um, different types of vaccines, so say J&J, &J, uh, which is very similar to the AstraZeneca vaccine, if you mix and match that with one of the mRNA vaccines like Pfizer or Moderna, you actually get an even better immune response. So I do think you're going to see more mixing and matching in the future as well. So sort of a separate matter, you know, we've seen cases on the rise across the United States. And as you mentioned, there's this important differentiation between, you know, what might be a positive test versus what might be symptomatic disease or something more serious. And we know that vaccines are effective at uh, at limiting um, um, severe disease. But at the same time, you know, cases are, are going up. And so I don't know, how should we look at this when we have a relatively high vaccination rate and, and a lot of uh, available vaccine for anyone who might want it? How should we perceive these rising case counts? How worried should we be, you know, vis-a-vis -vis last year when there were no vaccines? We are seeing this de decoupling between cases and hospitalizations and deaths. So what we mean by decoupling is we're seeing the cases shoot up more steeply than we are seeing hospitalizations and deaths shoot up. That said, um, that remains to be seen whether that decoupling holds because we're still early in 
our own surge with Delta. Um, and unfortunately, there are parts of the country that really um, have very low vaccination rates. And we don't know how much um, some of these breakthrough infections among vaccinated people might then be contributing to onward transmission and circulation of the virus among unvaccinated people. So that's really a, a black box at this time. And it seems like the, the rising case counts have also kind of resurrected the whole mask debate and whether we need to be wearing masks again. Um, I've been really enjoying my post-pandemic summer and not wearing a mask. Do, do I need to think about going back to wearing one? So this is a really good question. Um, many uh, local municipalities are looking at this question right now. L.A., for example, I was on a call with several New York City public officials yesterday um, where they were asking for my advice on this question. Um, I think, unfortunately, with the rise of Delta, which is so much more infectious, it's about a thousand times more infectious than the original uh, strains of the virus, that we really do need to think about layering protections. And so what are those layers? Well, for sure, vaccination. Uh, but some of the other layers that we should consider would be masking indoors when you're uh, outside of your household bubble, optimizing ventilation in the home. Um, and people are like, well, do I need to buy all kinds of fancy air filtration units and so on? And I, I can tell you, you know, as somebody who worked in uh, the field of tuberculosis for many years, including in sub-Saharan Africa, just opening your window works really well. It works even better than many of those units that you can buy to filter the air. Um, and so I think people really underestimate the power of opening windows. Um, and then finally, socializing outdoors as much as possible uh, to minimize your risk. So those would be the things you know, that I think we do need to be thinking about. Um, to sort of explain how much more infectious Delta is. So I said, you know, this is a thousand times more infectious. At the beginning of the pandemic, the CDC um, said that a close contact was somebody that you're indoors with, unmasked, for 15 minutes or more. Today, the equivalent of that with the Delta variant is not 15 minutes, it's one second. Does the indoor-outdoor um, you know, difference in protection still hold? Like if I'm outside, or let's say somebody I'm more worried about, my toddler who's unvaccinated is outside playing in the playground, is it okay if he's not wearing a mask? I mean, how I think about one second of transmission risk inside uh, for someone. How does it work outside? Yeah, so really, uh, the way to think about your exposure is it's dose uh, times time. So your dose is a reflection of how much virus the per person is carrying, which with Delta, it's you know like a thousand times more uh, virus that they're carrying than they would have with the original strains, but it's also diluted in the air around them. So if you're indoors, there's not a lot of air dilution unless you're opening up windows and doing that sort of thing. When you're outdoors, it's almost you know infinitely diluted. And so outdoors, your risk is really low of transmission. I think the only places that would concern me outdoors are if you're packed in together with people, say at an outdoor concert or at an outdoor uh, sport, sporting event, um, then I think there, there may still be some level of risk. But in general, outdoors is really pretty safe. That is reassuring. <laughs> so my last question for you is just, um, it's impossible to, to make you do this or for you to actually do this, but how are you looking at where the pandemic goes from here? There were a lot of stories a couple months ago thinking about how does this pandemic end? I think we even did an interview with Helen Branswell about how does this pandemic end? But we're in a fourth surge now. And of course, many countries don't have access to the vaccine yet. 
how does this pandemic end? How much longer is this going to go on? Well, remember, pandemic means around the world, so across multiple continents. Um, So if you're asking, you know, when is the pandemic going to be over? It's going to be years before this is over. I think what really worries me is somebody, um, you know, for the better part of my career worked in HIV and tuberculosis. Those are pandemics. Uh, You know, you're you're looking at about 3 million or so people dying from TB a year, a similar number of people dying from HIV per year. Um, And that's something that's been going on for decades. What concerns me is that this is going to be increasingly a pandemic of marginalized people in this country. So just as we saw the HIV pandemic start to concentrate among um, uh, LGBTQ communities, among black and brown communities, uh, I think you'll see something very similar happen with COVID here in the United States. And I think globally, you're going to see the COVID pandemic really concentrate in uh, countries, lower income countries that don't have access to vaccines, don't have the public health and healthcare systems to deliver the vaccines. And so I think this is going to become another disease of the poor and marginalized uh, as, as, as the pandemic continues to evolve. Well, Dr. Gander, thanks for joining us today. We appreciate it. No, it's my pleasure. So Scott Peters, a Democratic congressman from California, wrangles nine other moderate Democrats who oppose a high-profile drug pricing bill sponsored by House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Peters writes a letter to Pelosi basically telling her that he and the other moderate Democrats won't support her proposed legislation, which would allow Medicare to negotiate for lower drug prices. That letter is sent on May 3rd. Over the next two days, May 4th and May 5th, Peters received nearly $20,000 in political donations from pharma CEO and industry lobbyists. And we're talking big names writing these checks. Pfizer CEO Albert Borla, Merck's Ken Frazier, Eli Lilly CEO David Ricks, and Bristol-Myers Squibb CEO Giovanni Caforio. They all pitch in to support Peters. Rachel was the first DC reporter to write about that cash windfall. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. So, Rachel, I mean, this is obviously the timing here makes it notable and, and uh, one, it's easy to have a laugh upon reading a story like this, but it's important to note it's all perfectly legal, or at least it seems to be. What sort of responses did you get when you asked about the curious timing of this letter and the ensuing donations? Right. I mean, yes, again, perfectly legal, but just um, they're operating on a, a scale and a coordination that we don't even see, you know, even with you know, highly developed um, healthcare lobbying uh, operations. And when I reached out to the companies, most of them didn't respond to me. Um, I think pharma, um, for what it's worth, said that they had no role in the development of the letter itself, um, but they didn't answer other questions about, you know, whether they knew about the timing of when it was sent, you know, and whether that had any influence on kind of their um spurt of donations. Um, and then I heard back from a couple, you know, companies that say, you know, we we donate to members all the time who, you know, support our views, which is true. Um, but I think that I didn't get a whole lot of um, pushback or, you know, direct confirmation um, on kind of the the question that I asked of, as to whether this was a coordinated campaign specifically in response to Scott Peters' willingness to stand in the way of Nancy Pelosi's drug pricing bill. Hmm. And can you explain uh, a little bit, just for folks not following it super closely, like what Pelosi is trying to do with the bill and why the pharmaceutical industry is so against it? Basically, it's allowing Medicare to negotiate drug prices. And that would be a big deal for the pharmaceutical industry just because Medicare buys, you know, so many drugs. And when kind of 
the Medicare kind of drug benefit was developed, pharmacy, like pharma lobbying was able to kind of make sure that, you know, Medicare wasn't fully able to use its negotiating leverage um, to kind of determine how much they were going to pay for drugs like they do in a lot of other countries. So Nancy Pelosi's idea is pretty aggressive. It was kind of developed behind closed doors um, over kind of the past two years. And it would tie like negotiations to foreign like prices for drugs that companies charge elsewhere, which is what makes um, what makes the proposal save a lot of money, what makes it really, you know, attractive for Washington lawmakers who, you know, have a bunch of other spending priorities they have their sights on. So I think that is kind of the the issue that Scott Peters and, you know, his colleagues have with the bill and also kind of what, what Pharma is most concerned about. So as we said at the top, Rachel, uh, Peters is leading this group of moderate Democrats to oppose uh, Pelosi's bill. But Peters was also once for it. Is that right? Well, he voted for it. And his um, spokespeople pointed me to a couple speeches that he made, um, kind of voicing some concern about the drug's potential impacts on like small biotechs. You know, he represents a San Diego district that does, you know, have some some biotech presence there. But like, despite making the speeches, he still voted for the bill once as a standalone proposal in 2019. And again, folded in with some affordable Affordable Care Act policies in 2020. So regardless of his, you know, reservations he might have had, he still voted for it um, and is on the record doing so twice. So Democrats control the House by a very thin margin. And I'm realizing to mild horror that we're getting close to the 2022 election season. So I'm curious, you know, what happens if Peters and his group stand firm and vote no on this? How might that affect the party's basically control of the House? I think there's, you know, a million and a half moving parts at this particular moment um, in Washington in terms of what gets done. But um, in the current policy conversation, I think this question of what can Democrats do on drug pricing is really, you know, going to determine what their health care accomplishments are going to be ahead of the midterms, just because of the way Washington works and kind of the um, one of the few policies that Democrats can agree on that actually saves money is um, some sort of drug pricing reform. So I think we're definitely kind of in the thick of things right now. And Democrats really would love to have some tangible health care accomplishments to run on um, because kind of the the specter of the ACA repeal has kind of faded and faded away. So I think they're really counting on drug pricing policy um, to make, um, make things happen for um, their vulnerable members going into the midterms and it's going to be a tough it's going to be a tough midterms for them so i think they need all the help they can get and if the pelosi bill doesn't make it through might peters expect more big pharma checks coming this way <laughs> <laughs> well i think pelosi's bill isn't the only option on the table so um i think there's a senate a pretty big senate bill under development as well um and i think we we have seen pretty sustained pharma donations toward uh peters um, through kind of the the end of what I can publicly see, which is through the end of June 30th. I mean, there's another $40,000 that trickled in from, you know, pretty much every major pharma member under the sun. So I think, you know, they, they certainly see Peters as a linchpin uh, going forward in the coming months. And I think it would be, would be fair to expect that, you know, some of these donations would continue coming. Gotta love DC. Rachel, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me.
And that does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Bonato and Alyssa Ambrose, and our executive producer is Rick Burke. Our theme music is by Brian Joel. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you liked about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and whether you're wearing a mask indoors. You can do all of that by sending us an email to readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week.